Hello, my name is Jonathan Avas, and I am the director of the Acute Leukemia Program with Tennessee Oncology in Nashville, Tennessee. And I'm here today with uh, Dr. Mark Levis, the program leader in hematologic malignancy at the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're going to be discussing the role of Tibsovo in the treatment of relapsed refractory uh, AML in patients with an IDH1 mutation. Tibsovo is indicated for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, with a susceptible isocitrate dehydrogenase 1, or IDH1, mutation as detected by an FDA-approved test in two patient populations. First, in adult patients with newly diagnosed AML who are over 75 years old or who have comorbidities that preclude the use of intensive induction chemotherapy, or also in adult patients with relapsed or refractory AML. Tibsovo may cause serious side effects, including differentiation syndrome, QTC interval prolongation, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Patients treated with Tibsovo have experienced symptoms of differentiation syndrome, which can be fatal if not treated. This podcast is sponsored by Agios Pharmaceuticals. We have been paid by Agios Pharmaceuticals to participate in this podcast. So Dr. Levis, what are some of the challenges associated with treating relapsed refractory AML patients, and what are your treatment goals for these patients? I think you as a leukemia doctor know when you're confronted with a patient with a relapsed or refractory AML, your shoulders sort of sag, and you go, oh no, what do I do? What are the patient's goals? Is this patient up in years, not all that fit, and now I'm really on a paradigm of just trying to buy the patient months of survival, or am I still trying to cure this patient? Am I trying to get them back in remission and maybe take it, you know, take them to an allogeneic transplant? So obviously the patient context is hugely important, but at the same time, you have to understand the disease. If it's a complex karyotype TP53, something that's extraordinarily difficult to cure. You also have to balance what you're going to try and drag the patient through with what are your realistic goals of, of success. If you've got an option that you think might work, you've got a targeted agent that has a history of success in the relapsed refractory setting, okay, then you're going to get more aggressive potentially. It depends on both the patient and the disease. It's pretty grim. We have limited options. The exciting thing in the field is the emergence of targeted agents that all of a sudden offer something that works. Yeah, I agree with you completely. This is such a challenging patient population, particularly when you get into the older patients, uh, the less fit, where you know this road is not going to culminate in an allogeneic stem cell transplant. And that's where you really have to put such a great emphasis on quality of life and what do we have to offer these patients. I think this is where this is sort of this golden age of AML we find ourselves in where up until just a few years ago, it was either aggressive therapy and hit someone as hard as you can and try to get them to a transplant no matter how much you've beaten them up or essentially put them on a palliative path from the day they were diagnosed. And now that we actually have these targeted therapies, we're finding some options to actually treat these people while still placing a great emphasis on quality of life, yet still able to actually achieve some durable remissions to give these patients some really good time. So Dr. Levis, let's talk about the role of testing for mutations in AML. Why is it important to test for various mutations in your AML patients? We know Acute myeloid leukemia is a disorder defined by its mutations. There is not one single AML. Every patient's leukemia appears to be different, and the mixture of mutations define the disease. 
we always check for a broad mutation panel at diagnosis, but I think it's critical to check for those mutations at any change in disease status. So patient comes in, you initiate a therapy, and either the therapy doesn't work or the therapy works, they go into remission and they relapse. Either of those represents sort of a change in status. What we know about the biology of the disease is you will get emergence of clones. A mutation, a FLT3 or an IDH mutation may be present at diagnosis. It may be gone at relapse. It may be not present at diagnosis and emerges at relapse as these clones pop up kind of like whack-a-mole, you've got to actually always remember to recheck for mutation status and a change in, in disease status. Yeah, I completely agree. We're so blessed now to have several targetable mutations, things like FLT3 mutations, IDH1, IDH2, but then the plethora of information you get from mutational testing is just so important for the prognosis of these patients. They give us a complete picture of each individual's patient's AML, and that's really what helps us put them on a path. I like checking a broad panel at diagnosis and virtually every single time at a change in status. And certainly the older patients can, can initiate on IDH, at least IDH1 inhibition, pretty much immediately if, in fact, you, d you deem them unfit. So it's essential to check at diagnosis, particularly for IDH1. We mentioned FLT3 is another one, obviously, critical diagnostic uh, set. Exactly. And I've actually run into the situation where I've had a patient who, when they did prove to be refractory to an aggressive induction, uh, they were quite sick in the ICU and the family and patient opted for uh, not doing another aggressive round of therapy that would commit, but they wanted to do something. And that is where the information that there was an IDH mutation was able to say, we do have a therapy we can offer that might not have the potential efficacy of um, an ag aggressive reinduction at this point, but it also won't necessarily commit you to another four to six weeks in the hospital and the associated complications, and that just opened the doors. So that's just a great example of how having all this information up front can actually maybe benefit almost any sort of patient population in a relapse setting. Having the full array of mutations known also helps predict response we know that for some mutations, the presence of a co-mutation might either predict for or against a response. And so you really want to get the whole picture. Uh, FLT3 mutations are trouble all over the place, and so you kind of want to know about them. I've often seen IDH and FLT3 occurring at the same time. You want to look at the relative amounts, what types of mutation. You really need to get this whole picture of the patient on arrival. And again, I want to emphasize at any change in disease state. Absolutely. There's a huge role for a comprehensive mutational testing. Let's talk specifically about IDH1 mutations in uh, your patients. How do you, do you where, at what points of either new diagnosis, relapse, do you specifically look for IDH1 mutations and how does this uh, information help your patients? Well, IDH1 is one of those we'll, we'll check because we have the potential for treating a patient at diagnosis, but obviously I want it at diagnosis in anybody in case their treatment goes sideways. And it's important to remember, and I emphasize a lot to my junior faculty members, older patients coming in where you're busy discussing some, well, I've got some wonderful new, you know, low intensity regimen to offer them. You actually can offer them a pill. I have seen some remarkable responses in the newly diagnosed, really older patients just with monotherapy with Tibsovo as an IDH1 inhibitor, just right out the bat. 
Absolutely. And I think there's something else uh, that's very interesting about IDH1 mutations. There actually is an FDA approval for the frontline setting. And I think that's very important because this is where historically, once you deem a patient unfit for aggressive chemo, you're left with some fairly unsuitable options. So this really is giving the ability to actually pursue a targeted therapy at the time of diagnosis. And as you said, you've had some results with that, as have I. And that really just opens the door to really offering these patients a therapy that even just a few years ago wasn't available to them. The response rates up front are pushing 40%. That's what's so remarkable if you're patient. And the other point I would I often want to make with IDH mutations in general and IDH1 mutation in particular is the mechanism of action of transformation. We understand that it is production of the oncometabolite, 2-HG. And it seems as if the clone that's producing this, this oncometabolite is actually producing this stuff and it may have a transforming activity on its neighbors. The reason that's important is a low VAF might still respond to treatment. In other words, a patient might come in with a VAF of only 5% and somebody says, well, why do I want to bother targeting that? It's such a minor clone. That 5% clone could be transforming its neighbors with the production of the oncometabolite such that you get a response even in a low VAF. We know that VAF does not correlate with response. So you don't want to have the idea that a low VAF shouldn't be treated with an IDH1 inhibitor with Tibsova. Absolutely. Tibsovo is an IDH1 inhibitor approved for the treatment of newly diagnosed intensive chemotherapy ineligible and relapsed refractory AML with IDH1 mutations. Dr. Levis, based on the clinical trial data, what are your perspectives on the efficacy profile of Tibsovo in treating relapsed refractory AML with IDH1 mutations? Well, obviously, use of a targeted agent like this can produce responses where the patient is in despair has just been given some course of chemotherapy and you go on in and say, <laughs> the, the leukemia is staring right back up at us, almost unfazed sometimes. Here, we're going to give you this pill. Uh, and the patient might even be very glad to get a pill, but in fact, they're also somewhat skeptical. Is this really going to work when you just gave me this blistering treatment that didn't? But watching these responses slowly occur, over time, where the patient gradually is feeling better and better without needing transfusions, their counts come up, you look in their marrow two, three months later, and all of a sudden you see a remission. It, it really is a remarkable illustration of the science behind this field. Look what we did. We came up with this drug that just casually makes a little twist in the machinery of the leukemia and reprograms the thing. And it's quite gratifying. Yeah, it really is remarkable. We've been talking about IDH1 mutations in AML for years, and we've always known the prognostic importance from retrospective studies, but now that it's actually targetable, it's so exciting. Uh, and we were talking about how in this patient population, the intensive chemotherapy ineligible population with relapsed refractory disease, this is really the worst of the worst. You're handcuffed. You have such few treatment options. It was essentially a purely palliative approach. And now we're looking at a drug that you're not only getting responses, you're getting deep responses and durable responses. So it really is a pretty, pretty exciting option. The durability is an interesting point. I got an email from a patient in his late 70s who relapsed after his bone marrow transplant two years ago. And he sent me a Thanksgiving email thanking, really, and the man's on Tipsovo. 
And it actually was one of these long, slow times to get a full response. He wanted to thank me. He has another Thanksgiving with his family. That's remarkable. Those are the stories that, you know, just make it so amazing to see how the science has finally caught up with our 30-year-old understanding of the biology of the drug. And now we have a way we can help people by actually implementing it with a therapy. So as we're talking about practically treating these patients, I think it's important to talk about response times and what a course of a patient looks like who's on Tibsovo. So Dr. Levis, when do you expect to see responses in a patient on Tibsovo? You shouldn't have a time. And in fact, the patient I just mentioned took a year to go into response. And the very first patient that I put on the Tibsovo trial in a relapsed refractory AML was a young man. He took like eight months to actually make his bone marrow normalize to where the blasts were down. And then he was transfusion independent in the last six months of that. But it, it can take a very long time. And yet you had better be watching, as you know, early on, just in case some other things start happening or the response is quick. I've seen, I've seen responses in one month, or eh, two months, and I've seen responses in one year huge range. Exactly. It's making us retrain how we think about do we assess response to AML because when it comes to aggressive induction, we're very impatient. We look at a bone marrow on day 10 or day 14 and start to label people failures two weeks into their initial therapy. And then if they're not in remission at day 28, then we are really concerned. But now I think with Tibsovo, we really have to realize that this is because of the mechanism of action isn't directly cytotoxic. This is a slower process. It really does require a lot of patience on the part of the provider, but it also requires us to set very realistic expectations for the actual patient, let them know there might be some continued transfusion dependence for a while. There might be some persistence of blast for a while. And that's not indic indicative of a treatment failure. That just means that we're giving the drug time to work. Yeah, you'll get the report from the pathologist at two months and they'll kind of snippily say persistent AML. Uh, but the patient actually is beginning to get transfusion independent and those blasts are going down. So, you know, the oncologist is going to make the decision of whether or not the patient is benefiting, not the pathologist. So with the recent FDA approval of multiple new AML agents, we're starting to see the category of CRH, complete remission with hematologic improvement, come more and more into the common vernacular as we treat AML. Um, Dr. Levis, why don't you share your thoughts on CRH and how that clinically benefits and the clinical significance of that for our patients? CRH actually came about with the approval of an earlier drug in leukemia several years ago, and we were all baffled when we saw it, but the FDA had a very clear reason for why they were establishing this. A CRH is a complete response, but not quite a working group criteria. Complete response with an absolute neutrophil count above 500 and with a platelet count above 50,000. And while this was not a requirement, they clearly saw that patients who achieved this degree of response achieved transfusion independence. And the FDA looked at that and said, that is a quality of life issue. I'm so glad it's really sort of become the standard of care as something we look at. And I think moving forward, every new leukemia drug will be evaluating this moving forward as I think they will be. And then the other component of it is that now not only are you transfusion independent based on your hemoglobin and your platelets, you're also now not neutropenic. Now your ANC is over 500 and now you know those risks of serious life-threatening sepsis are virtually, uh, are, are greatly reduced. So 
So in every measure, I think the CRH endpoint is one uh, that, that really benefits our patients and is one that we now as leukemia specialists know to look for and really, really see some positive impact by using it as a, as a measure of success of treatment. Tibsovo has a boxed warning for differentiation syndrome. Dr. Levis, how do you diagnose and manage patients with differentiation syndrome? As leukemia doctors, we're used to managing this because we treat APL, and that's how we learned about differentiation syndrome. And when we start somebody with ATRA or arsenic or something, they have APL, their white count rises, you get forced maturation of these blasts, and the aberrant neutrophils that are emerging from this hone incorrectly to various sites of inflammation in the body and cause a flare-up in this thing called differentiation syndrome. Differentiation syndrome is when the aberrant neutrophils are targeting end organs. So you're getting breathing difficulties, cough, fever, sometimes kidney problems, end organ infiltration, the things that we saw with APL. But you must distinguish the rise in white count that can occur occasionally early on with differentiation syndrome, which typically is a little bit later and is going to cause the patient's symptoms. So the patient usually will tell you something's not right. The patient with differentiation syndrome, they'll tell you they're feeling something wrong. So recognizing it is key, being aware that it might happen. Again, what's the incidence? Oh, 20%, lots of arguments over what are your defining differentiation syndrome how often it's occurring, but it's, it's in that range. So Dr. Levis, when you do identify a patient who you think is having early developing differentiation syndrome, clinically, what are the next steps in your management? Well, first, increased monitoring, increased vigilance, enlist the patient in the process, let them know what's going on, that this is, reassure the patient that this is, that you're in control. It's fairly easy to treat, but then it's also the usual supportive care. I almost always add empiric antibiotics to somebody with a lung infiltrate regardless. Then you're almost always going to also have to add steroids. Absolutely. Um, I agree. So Dr. Levis, thank you for the great discussion. I think we covered a lot of bases. I think as a final question, let's just set the big picture for a new patient diagnosed with relapsed refractory IDH1 mutation AML who you're going to start on Tibsovo. What does that conversation look like related to the efficacy, the time to response, the adverse events? How do you set a patient and a family up for their journey ahead? Well, usually I've already made them a bit happier because they've come in with a diagnosis. This is usually a intensive chemotherapy ineligible older patient, and they've come in braced for the idea that I'm going to give them terrible news, that there's nothing treatable here, or we're going to try one of the more intensive regimens, which means a hospitalization and transfusions and so forth. And instead, I say, no, your leukemia has a vulnerability that we're going to attempt to target. It's going to be a pill. The patient is given quite a lot of hope. You actually do have an option here that I have seen work in the newly diagnosed setting remarkably well. Uh, and so the the conversation is one of hope. Now, yes, it doesn't always work, at which point then you've got to go to plan B. But almost always you're like, oh, please, uh, can I get an IDH1 up here out front? I mean, you actually have a legit shot. And so when this type of patient comes in and you send off that molecular profile like we talked about, 
oh, look at that. There's an IDH1 that, that I that I can try. And so often, you know, it, there's some excitement and hope with the conversation. Absolutely. I think I take a very similar approach in that I really tell the patient, while it's never a good thing to be diagnosed with cancer, let alone something as devastating as AML, I tell the patient that five years ago, we would have had such poor treatments to offer you, 10, 20, 20 30% overall responses, 10% CRs, median survivals of six months. And now we have an option for you because we understand the biology of your disease and because we have a great therapy, which might keep you around. I think it's a wonderful way to sort of send a positive message as a patient and their family are going through one of the hardest things they'll ever have to go through. Tibsovo is indicated for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, with a susceptible isocitrate dehydrogenase 1, or IDH1, mutation, as detected by an FDA-approved test in two patient populations. First, in adult patients with newly diagnosed AML who are over 75 years old or who have comorbidities that preclude the use of intensive induction chemotherapy, or also in adult patients with relapsed or refractory AML. Tibsovo may cause serious side effects, including differentiation syndrome, QTC interval prolongation, and Guillain-Barre syndrome. Patients treated with Tibsovo have experienced symptoms of differentiation syndrome, which can be fatal if not treated. If differentiation syndrome is suspected, initiate corticosteroid therapy and hemodynamic monitoring until symptom resolution. Patients treated with Tibsovo can develop QTC prolongation and ventricular arrhythmias, Concomitant use of Tibsovo with drugs known to prolong the QTC interval and CYP3A4 inhibitors may increase the risk of QTC interval prolongation. Guillain-Barre syndrome has occurred in patients treated with Tibsovo. Permanently discontinue Tibsovo in patients who are diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. In patients with relapsed refractory AML, the most frequently reported grade three and higher adverse reactions were differentiation syndrome, electrocardiogram QT prolongation, dyspnea, leukocytosis, and tumor lysis syndrome. There was one case of progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. Please visit www.tibsovopro.com to review the full prescribing information, including boxed warning and important safety information. This podcast is sponsored by Agios Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Levis and I have been paid by Agios Pharmaceuticals to participate in this podcast. This podcast is intended for U.S. physicians only. So I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Levis for his participation and discussion. This is a great conversation that I think I learned a lot from, and hopefully everyone listening will as well.